the theme of this conference is living with the network. So we probably should also welcome back everyone who is listening on the podcast and time, sh- time shifting or space shifting this as well. About three million years ago, Lucy and our ancestors lived purely with the network. They were in harmony with the network. If any one number of species grew in size, uh, their predators would have more food to eat, then the predators would become bigger, they'd eat all the food, and then they would have to diminish in size. And there was this sort of balance, uh, this harmony in the network and the predator and the prey in this cyclical dance. If we fast forward to about 10,000 years ago, mankind started to actually break out of this network. It was the first time that we were no longer uh, part of the network, but trying to control it itself. And, And this is when we started the whole long journey of genetic engineering. And it took hundreds of thousands of years But we took wild dogs and we started to crossbreed them into hunting machines. We took grasses and corns, which were native to the valleys, and began to crossbreed them and create the corn and the maize we eat today. This is the agricultural revolution. And just as sort of a baby is learning how to crawl and doesn't actually know what it's doing, this is what we were doing with the network. We were pulling the levers and pushing the knobs. We didn't really understand what was happening, but we were just experimenting. We were seeing how it impacted the larger network. If we compress time even further, we'll zip through the Industrial Revolution. And this was uh, Babbage's difference engine, Thomas Edison's ACDC debate, uh, the microphone, uh, the telegraph, uh, even the telephone. These are all stepping stones to why many of you are here today. These are all precursors to the internet. Tom Standage is a brilliant author. If you haven't read any of his books, I highly recommend it. His most recent one is The Writing on the Wall. And it's all, we, we tend to think that social networks are a very 21st century phenomenon. But in reality, he's you know, going through evidence that it's something we've been doing for two, 3,000 years now. And this is when the landowners or the masters might have something that they want to talk about. They would write it down, send it down to the town square, to the agora. Somebody would hammer it up. Other people would read it, maybe transcribe it, take it back to their master. Their master would you know, read through it. And there was this distribution of information and sort of a culture of, of sharing and responses. This is sort of an early PaperNet wiki or PaperNet, um, albeit not particularly efficient. Then we get to the Enlightenment era, the sort of era, the Republic of Letters, they call it. And it's about 200 years long, and we can see uh, each of the letters being sent and where they're sent from and to whom is receiving it. And uh, you can start to see here that there's some definite hubs appearing, you know, London, Looks like Dublin, Paris. Um, Over the 200 years, we can see each message being sent and the volume that's being passed along as well. Uh, We get other cities like Edinburgh starts popping up. Uh, At the end of the video, we'll have all of them overlaid on top. And you can see the sort of social graph, the network of letters. And this is the same thing that Twitter, Facebook, and other social networks have. Recommendations on who knows whom and who you should follow. The premise of uh, Tom Standage's book, Victorian Internet, if you haven't read it, uh, my sort of major takeaway from it was if you 
froze somebody in the Victorian era and stopped their understanding, like they didn't learn anything, and you thawed them out today, you know, we would be like, oh, look, we've got all this great stuff. We can send an SMS message. We can send an email, and it can go anywhere around the globe in just seconds, and it's great. And we would think we're really, really impressing someone from the Victorian age. But this person would probably scratch their chin and just say, well, yeah, we had that too. It was called the telegraph. We could send messages around the world in seconds as well. And I don't think they would be as excited as we hope they would be. Previously, the voyage from England to India via the Cape of Good Hope uh, around South Africa uh, took about six months. And then by the time you got to India, it might have been three, four months travel time to get to your final destination. So overall, uh, 10 months or so, up to 10 months to get to where you need to go. Then you might write a letter home, dear mom and dad, got here safe, put it in the post, and it's another eight to 10 months to get back. That's a year and a half to send a single message to and from destination. In 1837, uh, there was a steamer added through the Suez Canal, and that chopped the time down from uh, England to India to only two to three months. Also in 1837, Samuel Morris uh, patented the telegraph machine. Uh, 30 years later, 1866 was the first transatlantic cable which ran from the UK to North America, to Canada and actually connected North America to Europe via the telegraph system. In 1870, there was a cable laid from England to India, and just two years later, in 1872, the cable ran all the way down to Australia. It's amazing to think that in less than one generation, one human lifespan, we went from taking a year and a half to sending a letter from India back to England to less than 30 seconds to send a message to and from Australia. I bet you a lot of people in 1870 were worried about globalization and making the world a lot smaller. So a lot of the things we think that are unique to us and living with this network uh, turn out not necessarily to be true. So I've been toying with this idea because I really like the concept of if you halted someone's knowledge and then you know, cryogenically froze them and thawed them 50, 100 years later, you know, how would that mess with your head? And at the moment, I've just been calling this honeycomb syndrome because I remember vividly as a, a child this really bizarre and strange TV commercial for honeycomb cereal, um, which this child just morphs into this monster. I can show you that here. Someday you'll be taking a spelling test. Oh, no, no, greater. When suddenly, there'll be no stopping it. Ooh, honeycomb. Me want honeycomb. Honeycomb, sweet and crunchy. Toasted honey. Hey! Honey! Toasted honey. Honeycomb! Is something you want, young man? Yeah! Honeycomb! Post honeycomb cereal is part of this nutritious breakfast. Yeah. Where will you be when the craving strikes? That's a pretty bizarre commercial. <clears throat> But to us, we, we understand how this works. I mean, we understand the magic behind it. We, we get CGI. We understand green screen technology. Um, you know, the whole chroma key. We've lived through this. We understand it because we've been exposed to stop motion animation, to video games, to computer screens, to the weathermen and women you know, projecting in front of these things, to video games. You know, we've been slowly pushed up this ramp of artificialness, and we've been taking it step by step. But what happens if you had not you know, gone up this ramp? 
this is one of the very first movie clips ever recorded. Uh, it's by the Lumiere brothers. Uh, it was publicly shown in 1896, which is a year after they had shown their first bank of sort of 10 films. And the myth about this is that when people saw it for the very first time, they literally freaked out. Uh, it's a short little video of a train coming, coming at the screen. that's it. And that was the big hubbub of the day. And certainly at that time, the audience had never experienced anything like that. This was sort of a, a 3D projection of a train on a 2D screen. And maybe you know, their heads couldn't understand this. I remember as a child, the first sort of 3D movie I saw was this Michael Jackson, uh, Captain EO film down in Epcot. And you can probably find it online. I'm not, I'm not sure how well it's aged. But I vividly remember things coming out at me, and it was, it was a very surreal experience. So I can understand how maybe, you know, in 1896, people seeing that train for the first time, how genuinely they could have been affected. Someone once talked about um, their theory on why we would never have killer robots. And his thought, this person's premise, was that we would never have killer robots before we had, because before we had killer robots, we'd have to have evil robots. And before evil robots, we'd have to have mean robots. And before mean robots, we'd have to have sort of ill-tempered robots. <laughs> and the idea would be that at some point in time, we as a society would say, this is not a good thing. Let's set up some sort of legislation and law that prevents that sort of next step from happening. But I don't think, I don't think that's true. Because there's that story about, you know, you throw a frog in a pot of boiling water, and he'll jump out. But if you put a, a frog in a, a pot of warm water and slowly turn up the heat, he'll get boiled alive. And I think that's sort of where we are as well. I mean, we have killer drones. You know, Google owns Boston Dynamic, which has this massive big dog thing which chucks cinder blocks at people. I mean, we live in a world of killer robots. And why didn't we actually introduce legislation? And I think it's because we were slowly going up that ramp, where at each step of the way, it was like, well, that's okay. We don't like that, but it's not so bad. And we just continually went down that road. And I think living with a network is difficult because it's around us so much. And we don't actually understand that maybe we're being, we're that frog in the pot. Maybe we're being boiled alive. So a few years ago, uh, I tried a little thought experiment with some friends that I was calling 10012. And the reason being that 10 to the 0th power is 1, 10 to the 1st power is 10, and 10 to the 2nd power is 100. And what I did is I, I gathered a few friends around, and we tried to figure out future predictions for 1 year in the future, 10 years in the future, and 100 years in the future, and just kind of brainstorm some interesting you know, types of things that might happen. 10 to the 0, 1 year. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. 
And we all know somebody who's uh, tinkering in their garage, who's got an idea for a startup. Um, and if we just say, oh, what's going to happen in one year? We can just say that, and it'll probably be right. You know, most people have never seen what your friends are up to, so that's a pretty safe prediction. 10 to the second power, 100 years in the future, that's also a pretty safe prediction. I mean, we can't fathom 100 years in the future. It's too difficult for us. Anything we can say, no matter how crazy, is probably going to be true or not crazy enough. Today, to, uh, 5th of December to the 12th of December in 1914, so exactly 100 years ago, was the Battle of the Moraine. And there were Belgian, French, English, and German troops all fighting each other 100 years ago today. And if you asked any one of them, would you expect that there would be 7 billion people on the planet? That we would have a rover on Mars? That we would have a space station which has been continually orbiting our planet for 5,000 days? That we'd have something called Oculus Rift? You know, or even that a, a bearded, cross-dressing Austrian would win something called Eurovision? <laughs> and these things are just literally unfathomable. You know, they would never have thought of these. No matter cra how crazy it would be, it, it would definitely probably be true. So that means that there's 10 to the first power. And this is, I think, the sort of hardest sort of time frame to get right. And the reason being that, you know, for some things it's too short, for some things it's not enough time. Uh, William Gibson uh, wrote a story, uh, Pattern Recognition. And in the story, he talks about um, this Buzz Rickson jacket. And this company, Buzz Rickson's, makes... Uh, authentic World War II jackets with all the flaws from the production system in the 1940s and 50s. And he, they get it perfect, even though it's made in modern day. And in William Gibson's story, he talks about this beautiful black, you know, MA1 black sort of flight jacket. The problem is, it never actually existed in black. They only ever made it in olive green. So he got it wrong about the future. I think so many people were talking about this and requesting this jacket that Buzz Rickson saw an opportunity. So they actually started producing it in black. So it's quite interesting to think about someone in the past writing a story about the future, affecting a company in the present day to make sure that the future is correct. <laughs> and this is what's interests me, because um, as technologists, and sometimes if we do design work or theoretical things or write about the future or discuss it, we can actually make it come true. You know, sometimes life imitates art. So by us purely writing about it and brainstorming these things, we can actually make the future come true. A few years ago, uh, myself and my friend Mike Stenhouse wrote a short story about a guy in the near future having a birthday. And you know, wishing someone a happy birthday on social media is sort of this weird kind of thing. So many sites have co-opted the word friend. You know, do you actually wish all your friends a happy birthday? You know, I've got over 4,000 followers on Twitter. That would be, on average, 10 people a day having a birthday. And there's a great uh, NPR, uh, short five, 10 minute talk uh, about this and what it actually means to wish someone a happy birthday in social media. So the way we went about doing this is we set up uh, roughly about a 30-minute grid. So every 30 minutes, we kind of figured out what is our protagonist doing in these, in these 30 minutes. And you can read it online. Uh, we're both software developers. We're not the greatest writers in the world. But it was interesting and a lot of fun sort of to go through the, the motions. 
Um, and one of the things we kind of thought about is maybe in the future, you know, you know how when someone sneezes and you just say, Gesundheit, or God bless you, sort of as this knee-jerk reaction? You don't actually mean, oh, you know, good health, I hope things are okay. You're just being polite. And maybe in the future, when all your smart devices and the network knows that it's your birthday, when you walk into a room, someone else's phone or smart device might buzz in some little Morse code fashion, and someone in the room just yells out, happy birthday. You know, not actually wishing you a happy birthday, but just being polite, because that's what we do in society. You know, happy birthday. Um, we also got to create a lot of new interesting words. Like we came up with the concept and the word cliches. Uh, and one of the concepts of you know, living with the network is when you go into work, you'll check in, and if you've got a big company and you're hot desking, maybe you'll, you'll log into the desk, and then in the network, you'll say, ooh, Brian is down on the first floor. And cliches, we call them, they're, they're cake leeches. <laughs> These are people who realize, ah, Brian's having a birthday, he's on the first floor, and they'll log in and collect hot desks near you. That way, when the birthday cake comes along, they're guaranteed to get a slice. After we wrote the story, we sort of did a follow-up of a lot of our inspiration. And we wanted to talk about things like, well, you know, we talk about this little cleaning device. And really, that was how we envisioned maybe, maybe you know, version 15 of the Roomba. Um, but we had a lot of other crazy, kind of far-out ideas as well. But as we did our homework, we found out that they weren't actually crazy enough. You know, some of these things that we thought were you know, non-fiction actually just existed today. And that's what really excites me about living with the network. There's some incredible possibilities out there. You know, like I said, we had this idea of a, a you know, custom routed bus network which would pick you up if you sent a message on your phone. Lo and behold, there's two or three cities trying to actually do this. You know, our nonfiction, as crazy as we could come up with it, is actually reality today. But what is this network that we keep talking about? Um, back in 2006, then-Alaskan Senator uh, Ted Stevens came up with this choice quote uh, about the Internet being a series of tubes. I think the scariest thing about it is he was in charge of e-commerce and Internet for the U.S. at the time. But while he's technically wrong, you know, the Internet isn't a series of tubes or a big truck, um, I think he's on to something in the sense that we need to think about it as a utility, as just a dumb network. And this is where we get into a lot of discussions about net neutrality. When you have water and piping coming into your house, you don't get charged a different amount if you're doing dishes, making dinner, or drawing a bath. And we understand this. It is just a utility. It's a dumb pipe. And we should consider the network to be something very similar. In 1791, Claude Chappelle and his brothers built the sort of first network of semaphore stations across France. And these semaphore stations, they look a bit like windmills, and you can adjust the arms. And as you adjust the arms, you kind of send out Morse codes of different letters and numbers. And there would be a series of these uh, a certain distance apart where each one would talk to the next one, and they could relay messages back from anywhere in the country back to Paris uh, faster than anything else. When Napoleon took over France, um, it was covered with these semaphore stations. And he probably had the largest private network of any individual in the world at the time. Now, this was truly the first sort of dark net. But the problem was that it was private. It wasn't a, uh, it wasn't a nationalized, democratic uh, 
network system. It wasn't a utility that anyone could use. So I think that the first one was probably the penny black stamp. This was the truly democratic dumb network. And in 1837, to send a package from down here in Brighton up to Edinburgh, what you would do is you'd take your letter, your package, to the post office, they'd measure it, they'd weigh it, they'd open a big book and try and figure out how many miles it was between the two cities, then they'd open another big book and with all those factors figure out what the price was. And this was incredibly inefficient, incredibly slow, and it was just a, a huge hassle. So late in 1831, 1837, they decided to have a, a postal reform to try and fix this problem. And Sir Roland Hill proposed that wouldn't it be easier if we just had an adhesive stamp that you could pre-buy, stick on, as long as it's within some dimensions, take it in, drop it off, and you're done. So that's when they kind of came up with this first concept of the penny black stamp. And our friend Charles Babbage did all the mathematics, and he figured out for long distances we might lose a little bit, but for short distances we'll make it up. And as a whole, as a whole network, we would be fine and it would be profitable. I think this is sort of the first instance of a truly democratized utility. So as we talk about this network layer, it's interesting to think about who owns it. You know, when you start to buy this Internet of Things devices, you know, we no longer own this network either, where it's a shared resource. Uh, I've got a very expensive Wi-Fi light bulb. It's a beautiful thing. But if the manufacturers of this company say, well, you know what, we dabbled in the whole data center thing, but we're really good at manufacturing and not really good at that other stuff, and they turn it off, my expensive Wi-Fi smart light bulb just becomes a dumb bulb. Okay, so what? Not a whole lot of devices are like that, though. You might buy some really expensive Internet of Things stuff, and if the company goes out of business or decides that this is not their business model, now you've just got a big lump of plastic or metal sitting on your, on your shelf. Without the app or the mothership, a lot of these things just tend to die. And we see this a lot with uh, DRM, with things like Xbox and PlayStation, even your computer. If it can't log in and connect and, and correctly identify you, it stops you from, from playing or using it. Uh, Samsung, a few years ago, had a fire in one of their data centers, and thousands of devices just fell silent for no fault of their own. It's just that they couldn't connect to the mothership and actually... Uh, shake hands. And you have other problems with you know, Adobe Creative Cloud, even SimCity. The network was so jammed that people couldn't get on and they couldn't play. So this reliance on the network tends to become a problem. You know, and the question becomes, do we actually own the devices that we paid for? This isn't necessarily digital rights management. This is sort of digital service management. This is vendor lock-in at sort of the next level up which is somewhat worrying and concerning, and we need to talk about these things and think about it. The other thing about Internet of Things devices at the moment is they seem to be incredibly needy. For some reason, they're always beeping or flashing or sending me push notifications. They're really good at pestering you, but not necessarily so good at solving problems. Now, this is the Botanical. It is a sort of modified Arduino board. Uh, it's got a couple extra leads that you can stick into your plant pot. And when the plant needs watering, it'll send you an SMS or a tweet. And there's lots of services out there, like If This Then That, which will kind of connect one app to the other. There's also a device called Sammy Screamer. So anytime it's, it's moved or shaken, it can send a push notification and send off all sorts of 
alarms. And it really reminds me that maybe this Internet of Things is sort of like a two-year-old child. It's always you know, dragging your attention and making noise and you know, the center of attention and has to be there. You know, rather than having the, you know, the botanicals, rather than telling me that my plants need watering, why don't you just actually solve the problem and water my plants? Because people have been doing this for years. I mean, people have been making cat VCR feeders. You can set the timer, the record feature on the VCR, and whenever it goes off for 30 seconds, the playhead goes and dumps out cat food. And could you imagine what sort of a Silicon Valley version of an Internet of Things cat feeder would be? It would probably be some Bluetooth collar for your cat so it could geofence it to detect the proximity to the bowl. Uh, the bowls would have a scale in them, so as the food was deplenished uh, or the water ran out, it could send you a push notification. And that's all good and swell, unless you're down here in Brighton for a conference. You know, it's not actually solving the problem. It's creating more issues than, it's, than, than it is. But we're definitely in the early stages of the Internet of Things. And I think a lot of the creators uh, want to remind you about how smart they are or how beautiful the product is and why you really, really need this thing. So, of course, the only way they can do that is to constantly pester you and bring you back into the app or into using it. So right now, I'm on this big kick about smart defaults rather than smart devices. I want things that solve my problems rather than annoying me. And like I said, I've got one of these nice $100 kind of expensive Wi-Fi light bulbs, and it's a beautiful piece of engineering. You know, it's fully scriptable, I can write my own code, it's great, but I never really use it. This, on the other hand, is a little $5 IKEA nightlight. And there's an ambient light sensor on the top of it. So when there's light in the room, it detects that and turns itself off. But when you turn the lights off in the room, okay, there's not any ambient light, so it turns itself on. It's an incredibly simple piece of manufacturing, and they've probably sold hundreds of thousands more than these Wi-Fi light bulbs. But it's not sexy, it's not fun. It is, it's more the smart default, because 99% of the time, it's exactly what I wanted. The room's dark, I would prefer having a light on. And there's a lot of teams which are creating sort of Internet of Things devices, and I think that they're aiming way too high. You know, I think you really start to need to solve the boring and the mundane. You know, if your product needs a setting pan settings panel or control panel, you're probably doing things wrong. You know, I want my smart devices that I'm paying hundreds of dollars for not to pester me, but to actually solve my problems. And again, we can continue talking about what is this network that we keep talking about. Right now in the EU, uh, you have the right, right to be forgotten. So you can request from Google to be removed from the search index. And there are lots of problems with this, and we're trying to figure out how this works exactly but it is part of your human rights within the EU that you have the right to privacy, and part of that is the right to be forgotten. And this works with Google for two reasons. Google is a physical entity. It is a company working within the EU. and It has an address and filed with company's house. But it also, there is a legal system in place to enforce these things when there is a problem. There's shareholders and there's financial incentives to work within these laws. But in a world where it's just the network, none of these things are guaranteed. And when that happens, things tend to fall apart and all bets are off. 
And Bitcoin is sort of an example of this at the moment. You know, no one person or company owns Bitcoin. There is no headquarters that you can go down to and knock on the door. They're not registered with company's house. You know, there's not a business model. There's no dividends or shareholders to come after if they're breaking the law. You know, threatening it in one country is like telling the weather, you're not allowed to rain today. It's just not possible. With our privacy example, you know, Google complies because if they don't, the EU is going to find them. And they have to weigh up, well, how much is it for us to fix this problem versus how much is the fine going to cost versus how much goodwill are we going to lose or gain with, uh, with our users. And Google has to figure these things out because they work within the EU borders. Uh, and they're going to figure out, should we just go with it or maybe challenge it in court? But with Bitcoin or other purely networked entities, all you know, these are empty threats. You know, there's no company to find. There's no business to be lost if you, if you say they can't do this. <clears throat> the right to be forgotten becomes a very interesting thing because maybe in the future there is no central database of search results. There's tiny bits of search results on everybody's computer. And when a request is made, you don't even know that you have the data. And then how are you going to enforce things like the right to be forgotten in a purely networked world? There's a great story by uh, Bruce Sterling called Maneki Echo. Maneki Neko. And it's all about this network of sharing. And in the story, uh, everyone has these little smart devices, and the network sends out tasks. And they send out tasks like, oh, we see you're buying a coffee. We want you to buy a second coffee, and when you go through the park, hand it to the first person you see on a bench. Okay? Uh, another task would be, you're going to receive a bottle of cologne. When you receive that, pour it down the sink. Neither of these two things are illegal or wrong, but we don't understand the knock-on effects that might happen later on. And it's interesting to know because it's pure deniability. Well, why did you do that? I don't know. The network told me to. Uh, there's a great thinker uh, and linguist, uh, George Lakoff, and he's written several books which I highly recommend reading. Um, but I was trying to channel my inner Lakoff and wonder, what would he think about the term Internet of Things? he's using language and metaphors all the time. You know, things like, I feel good, let's get up, or I feel down. Why, are, why is directional you know, up good and down bad? So what is, in metaphors, what does the internet of things actually sort of mean? It's only three little words, um, but they're definitely loaded, and they're not always correct. You know, right now, eye beacons are a big thing. You walk into a shop, uh, your phone might pair with a device and send you information. This is probably Bluetooth or near-field communications, and it's happening within an app, neither of which are necessarily using TCP IP or HTTP. But most people would probably connect, assume or kind of feel that this is Internet of Things. It's Internet-y type of stuff. But it's not necessarily true at all. The word Internet immediately sort of frames this as a big global cloud type of thing, which isn't necessarily true. So that's already wrong. Uh, the word of is just of, so there's not much we can do with that. Um, but then things, things also feels really wrong to me as well. Because this whole internet of things, it sort of implies stuff and a very first world type of, of problem. It's like saying, you know, these are my toys. There are many like them, but these are mine. You know, internet of things implies stuff, which again, won't always be true either. Because in the future, maybe, you know, you know this stage those walls, your chairs, they're all going to be part of the network. 
And it's going to fade into nothing. And it's not going to be the things, thinginess that we sort of assume. Kevin Kelly is another smart guy. And he did some homework. And he kind of guessed that King Henry VIII had about 7,000 objects. He was king of England and probably the richest man of his time. And only owned about 7,000 sort of things. So Kevin Kelly thought to himself, well, how many things do I own? So he counted up all the objects he had, and he came to around 6,000 objects. So he had the same order of magnitude as King Henry VIII. But really, things themselves aren't important. Sure, he had roughly the same things, amount of things as the king, but that didn't make him a king. Nor does owning things make you a king. And the Internet of Things really puts a lot of emphasis on stuff where I don't think that's important. Can a small village in a developing nation not be part of the Internet of Things because they don't have Internet or things? I think that's wrong. Which is why I really like the theme of this conference, because it's living with the network. And we've been doing that for three million years now. We've been living with it. Now it just happens to be through digital screens, beeps, whistles, and push notifications. We understand the concept of the network already. Now, I do this stuff for a living. I'm a software developer. I tinker with hardware. But I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen in the future. I can't tell you. What I do know is I bet it's probably going to be pretty exciting. Thank you very much.